1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Neil Denny. This week, the last of our three special editions of Little Atoms in association with the 2015 Royal Society Winter Prize for Science Books, ahead of the award ceremony on Thursday the 24th of September. Coming up, interviews with Matthew Cobb about his book Life's Greatest Secret, The Race to Crack the Genetic Code, and a repeat of our interview from May 2014 with Alex Bellos on his book Alex Through the Looking Glass, How Life Reflects Numbers and Numbers Reflect Life. And then friend of the show, Ian Stewart, returns for a brief chat about his role as this year's chair of the judging panel. Matthew Cobb is Professor of Zoology at the University of Manchester, where his research focuses on the sense of smell, insect behaviour and the history of science. His previous books include The Egg and Sperm Race and the acclaimed histories The Resistance, The French Fight Against the Nazis and The 11 Days in August, The Liberation of Paris in 1944. He's also the award-winning translator of books on the history of molecular biology, on Darwin's ideas and on the nature of life. And his latest book, Life's Greatest Secret, The Race to Crack the Genetic Code, which we're going to be talking about today, has recently been shortlisted for the Royal Society Winter Prize for Science Books. So, Matthew, thank you very much for telling me about it today.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me along, Neil.
2: Tell me briefly what Life's Greatest Secret is about.
3: Well, it's about DNA, but it's not about the bit of DNA that most people think that the story of DNA is about. I mean, when people talk about uh, DNA, they know that it's a double helix. And thanks to uh, Jim Watson's uh, brilliant but highly partial account of the discovery of the double helix structure by himself and Francis Crick, uh, which is called the double helix and which everybody should read, people tend to think that was kind of the, the pinnacle, this discovery of the double helix structure was really, really the end of the story. And what I wanted to do was to show that, uh, in fact, that was the beginning of the story, but that really the double helix structure, whilst, uh, as people said at the time, it was so beautiful that it almost had to be true, that double helix structure only tells us, imme- or told them immediately one thing, which was how the DNA molecule replicates itself, which was something that Jim Watson was really obsessed by. But lots of different, molecules can replicate themselves, crystals grow, they copy their molecular structure and they grow, but they're very, very boring. And although DNA, the way that DNA copies itself is extremely complicated and people are still arguing about exactly how it works, that's not a fundamental feature of life. What is Really important is not so much that double helix, but what the helix actually contains. And this was described in a, a second article by Watson and Crick, not the one that everybody thinks of that they published in uh, the end of April 1953, but an article that they published six weeks later called The Genetical Implications of the Structure of uh, deoxyribose nucleic acid. They said this, it therefore seems likely that the precise sequence of the bases is the code which carries the genetical information. And that sentence, the bases are the little rungs. If you imagine the DNA molecule is like a ladder that you then twist, the bases compose the rungs that connect the two strands of DNA. And it's the sequence, the order in which those rungs occur on the molecule that, is the significant bit. And this idea that Watson and Crick came up with, almost certainly the the work of uh, Crick, actually represents the whole of modern biology. That's the moment when it all changes, when, for a start, everybody accepts that there is such a thing as a genetic code, that this code is contained in the sequence of bases, and ultimately, therefore, the idea that you can manipulate it, which is obviously what we do a great deal of these days. And finally, and most intriguingly, the idea of what they actually contain. They contain this stuff called information, genetical information. That idea, genetical information, those words had never been uttered before. Nobody had ever said them. It's the first time they appear in print, and they just... It's kind of obvious, yes, this must be it. Something like those words are said every day in school rooms and in university lecture theatres all over the world as we explain what's in genes. So what I wanted to do was to see where those ideas came from and then what happened to them after they had been uttered and let loose into the scientific community, how people cracked the genetic code and what the consequences of that were.
2: We'll come back to some of those points as we go along. But that sentence of Crick's that you just described, now, we know how science works. Somebody comes up with a you know, a new idea, a new hypothesis. Everybody poo-poos it for a bit. People test it. It takes ages for things to get accepted, usually. But you describe in the book how remarkable as that sentence was, it was obviously right to everybody, and everybody just suddenly went along with it.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely right. The, so in a way, it's not... It's not so much a specific hypothesis, but what they're doing, although it is very precise, what they're actually doing here is, in a way, they're kind of condensing the zeitgeist. These ideas were floating around in in science and culture, and the idea of code, information, sequence, each of them in the previous... Uh, up to 10 years, had emerged from various strands of the scientific community and were beginning to be applied. And they then kind of condensed them all into this kind of immediate ball of this singularity of genetics that was just so blindingly obvious and useful as a way of thinking that everybody basically uh, accepted it virtually overnight. I've never seen any criticism of this idea. Indeed, the only criticism of the idea of genetic information has come over about the last 10 years when philosophers of biology have got rather cross about it and said there e- it either it does or doesn't exist. But biologists have never worried about it because the power of this metaphor is primarily a metaphor, although it had its origins in very precise uh, mathematical concepts of information. The power of this metaphor is such that it enables us to think about what genes are, what they contain, what they do, what exactly is being transmitted down the generations, that it is so powerful that there's, there's no reason to question it.
2: Let's look at some of the steps leading up to it then. In fact, I want to go back further than the 10 years you've just described. Let's talk about further. First of all, when we first really came up with the idea of heredity, of inheritance, and it's there's a bunch of monks who, who start knocking around this idea.
3: So nobody ever believes, it's one of the things that I've, I've had to get, come to grips with, that nobody ever believes, but it's true that it was only in the early 19th century, end of the 18th, early 19th century, that people accepted that heredity existed as a force. Up until that time, the only thing you could inherit was a debt or land. You couldn't inherit a physical property. And during the 17th century, a whole set of studies, experiments, agronomic studies developing uh, new sheep breeds, uh, but also studies of the transmission of polydactyly, that is of having several fingers and even of uh, various other diseases, mental diseases, apparently tracking down the the generations led to thinkers becoming convinced by the end of the 18th, early 19th century that there was this kind of force in nature, which was called uh, heredity. And the person who most people associate with this is Gregor Mendel, one of the monks you, you just described. And one of the things that uh, has become apparent over the last five, uh, ten years, it's not primarily my research, but uh, I'm very keen to popularise it. We all learn about Gregor Mendel, who's this monk, and he was obviously a bit crazy, and he's obsessed with peas, and he starts planting them, and he comes up with these great ideas about, uh, about genetics. And what we in fact now know is that Yeah, Mendel was a very smart guy, extremely. But it wasn't actually his idea to start studying heredity. And in fact, this was something that was floating around in the time in the monastery to which he was recruited as a brilliant young man, a bit like uh, either a football team would bring in a player or university departments will buy in great scientists to increase their research capacity. Because the monastery, uh, was both uh, in Brno, in uh, what is now the Czech Republic. What they wanted to do was to investigate the nature of heredity, because the local sheep breeders uh, who bred for wool, they wanted to imitate what the British had done for meat, uh, is they bred a new breed of sheep that got to butchering weight much, much quicker, and therefore you could make more money out of it. Uh, these were called the, uh, the Leicester dishleys, and uh, in one of the paradoxes of history, by the 1970s, they were an endangered breed. Anyway, what the the local sheep industry wanted to do was to try and understand how they could develop new breeds very quickly. And a man called the uh, Abbe Knapp, who was in charge of the monastery in Brunel, what he said is, look, the key thing we've got to ask is what is inherited and how? He said that uh, in 1825. Absolutely remarkable. He's saying the real problem of biology, of understanding, This heredity thing is what is being inherited and how does it work? And he therefore set this young scientist, Mendel, Gregor Mendel, on to try and track out down the problem. Mendel was able to crack the problem using pea plants, uh, which had particular characteristics that he could track down the generations. And then in one of the kind of strange cul-de-sacs of history, uh, his work was not really uh, developed or paid attention to. He published his uh, lecture in 1865, and basically the work was forgotten. He had to retire from science because he had to administer the uh, the monastery after Abbe Knapp died, and it was only at the turn of the 20th century that uh, his work was rediscovered and replicated separately by three people and so 1900 is the rediscovery of Mendel's work but it's also the beginning of the century of genetics and
2: it's also rough around this time as well that you know you just mentioned the, the century of genetics it's, it's the beginning of when we actually the concept of genes and the, the discovery of chromosomes as well is sort of happening around this time
3: yeah so chromosomes uh, again quite interesting chromosomes with that's where genes are now we, we don't forget the word gene hadn't been uh, it was only invented in about 1909, maybe a little bit earlier, but it was invented after the rediscovery of Mendel's work. What people had noticed was that the chromosomes, these structures inside cells, seemed to be doubling up and then splitting as a cell divided. They would double up and then split into the two daughter cells. The only reason these could be observed was because of the development of new dyes, um, which were initially developed for clothing industry, but were then applied to science and in fact, the word chromosome means coloured body because the mixture of DNA that, and proteins that uh, chromosomes are made of happens to take up some stains. And so once you were able to pour this stuff onto your cell and look at it down a microscope, you could actually see this strange ballet taking place under your eyes. So people began to think there was something going on in chromosomes. And then when the idea of genes were posited, there was a lot of evidence fairly quickly, and especially through developing science of genetics in uh, in Columbia University in America on Drosophila, where it was actually shown that different eye colours and different wing shapes uh, and so on actually seemed to go with different bands on the chromosome that you could see down the microscope and you could actually track a particular shape on the chromosome seemed to be associated with a particular eye colour and this led to the general assumption by about the 1920s everybody accepted that genes were on chromosomes but what genes were nobody knew some people thought they were like a particle, like a thing, a physical thing. Other people said, well, maybe they're the amount of something. Maybe it's some kind of fluctuating quantity. Others said, well, we don't know. We don't care because all we're interested in is what genes do. So it seems very bizarre to us now that people weren't terribly interested. But in general, people were not obsessed with this topic in the 1930s. What the general assumption was, but it was by no means universal, was that uh, genes were made of proteins. The reason for this being that genes do an awful lot of things. And so if they had a, a physical basis, then that physical basis had to be equally varied and proteins which make up a bit of chromosomes are amazingly varied they do all sorts of things so people kind of assumed that that's what uh, proteins uh, did proteins were genes this was reinforced by the fact that the first uh, virus to be crystallized its composition to be identified in the 1930s was identified as being uh, a protein this was in fact completely wrong and it's because there were very small amounts of rna in the sample that led them to suggest that it was a protein when in fact it wasn't at all it was actually a virus made of RNA. But this illustrated the problem that people had in trying to grapple with the nature of these very, very small molecular structures at a time when they didn't really have the tools. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: To little atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today, I'm talking to Matthew Cobb. We're talking about his book *Life's Greatest Secret*, which has been shortlisted for the Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books this year. And Matthew, if I ask you to tell me what we mean by genetic code, annoyingly for this podcast and what I normally would ask my uh, interviewees to do, you'll probably give me a one-word answer.
3: Yes, I would. It's the word I've been uh, not not used so far, uh, and that word is information. Part of the, the the difficulty in writing the book or talking about it is I've kind of given myself this very strict rule of not using words until they were. Invented or came into common use And part of the reason for that Is that it makes it more of a surprise When you, the reader realises That there's this new word And above all it shows the power Of ideas in changing the ways That scientists can think Because words enable us to manipulate Concepts in new ways And this idea of information This concept was emerging In 1942, 1943 There were two mathematicians uh, In America, Claude Shannon and Norman. Norbert Wiener, who were both working on anti-aircraft guns as part of the war effort. They were trying to work out how to predict where an aircraft would be so that you could fire your shell at it and destroy it. And uh, both of them, in different ways, came up with a concept of information as being involved in this kind of process. Uh, Shannon went on to develop this into a whole theory called communication theory, which is now generally known as information theory, which is how you get a message from a transmitter to... a receiver and what kind of happens to it in the middle if there's a lot of noise and disruption and so on. And they both came up with mat- mathematical measures of the information content of a, any message, any message at all. So this idea of information rapidly moved out of this uh, kind of uh, high security wartime area of uh, building a better anti-aircraft gun, and entered the public domain. Both men wrote books. Uh, Shannon's uh, Communication Theory was published in 1948, still in print. Mathematicians and biologists read it, though it's pretty hard going. Norbert Wiener also wrote a book uh, which coined a, a very important term which is still being used today, cybernetics, his book was called, and he was interested in the way that uh, information flows around systems and is used to control behavior in both machines and animals. And so all our words, beginning with cyber, they all go back to uh, Norbert Wiener. He invented that term uh, in 1948. Both these books were discussed in the scientific community. There were conferences about the ideas in them and so on. So this idea of information started to float around within the scientific community. So by the end of the 1940s, people had started to think about the relevance of the sequence of the bases within DNA, as evidence became clearer that DNA made up genes, people then said, well, what's actually the evidence that these four bases are present in equal levels? And the answer was there wasn't really much evidence at all. In fact, it became increasingly apparent that the sequence they could, genes could encode vast amounts of information by having different sequences of these bases so by the end of the 1940s early 1950s you had the idea of sequence you had the idea of code and you had the idea of information all being used in various ways and it took uh, the genius of Crick almost certainly to kind of as I said to condense these ideas into this this kind of bombshell which then changed the way that uh, we all thought and
2: we're at that point then where Watson and Crick Rosalind Franklin Maurice Wilkins all in their you know various different ways discover they the double helix structure. Three of them win the, the Nobel Prize for it in 62. It's
3: the, the key turning point of modern biology and of my story. Um, what I want to say, though, is that this concept of, of sequence variability and in information, which Crick kind of brilliantly realises, Rosalind Franklin also realised. The difference being that she was working on her own because her life was so awful at Uh, King's College London where uh, Maurice Wilkins was also working she decided at the beginning of 1953 to abandon her work on DNA and go to Birkbeck and start working on RNA so she was kind of winding things up at the beginning of 1953 she's working on her own Uh, she no longer has a PhD student working with her so she's simply on her own trying to do this amazingly complicated mathematics because most people like me I guess imagine oh double helix it's just a matter of two you've just got to have a concept of these two twisty molecules and it all makes sense. And we've been kind of led along that line by what Jim Watson says in uh, the double helix about how he sees this photograph, photograph 51, which uh, has got these blobs on it, and he immediately realizes that it must be a double helix. Well, that's not actually true, uh, despite the play that's about to come on in uh, in, in London with Nicole Kidman, uh, that photograph did not have that significance because to make the double helix model, what Watson and Crick spent the early months of 1953 trying to do is they needed very precise numbers, not an idea. They needed very precise numbers about the molecular angles and the relationship of the atoms in this molecule. They obtained that from a Medical Research Council report which contained some data of Rosalind Franklin this wasn't a secret report, and there was nothing underhand about the way they obtained it. On the other hand, it was most definitely Franklin's data that provided Crick with the way to put the model together. But he could only do that because he'd been working by chance on this problem in haemoglobin. He'd been working on the problem of the data you get from crystallography if you've got a double helix, two helices intertwining. So he was kind of prepared to understand these data. He had the huge advantage of of having Watson, he could bounce ideas off. And he was in a lab where he had now, by this stage at the beginning of 1953, been given the kind of green light to go ahead and study it. So he was in a very supportive environment. Poor old Franklin didn't have the same mathematical insight as Crick. She hadn't developed these mathematical tools. And above all, she was working on her own. And yet you can see in her lab notebooks that she realises the basic structure. She hasn't got the exact details. And above all, She realises that this sequence of bases could be an infinite number of orders and therefore could encode the variety of behaviours of genes, all the various things that genes do.
2: So the subtitle of the book, The Race to Crack the Genetic Code, as you sort of explained at the beginning of the interview, is really the story of what happens after that discovery. So I wanted you to talk about some of the lesser to the public, well-known people that you write about in the book. Before we do that, just briefly explain to us what the central dogma what that is.
3: Okay, well, if I can, can I just go back a bit further before that? So Watson and Crick published their two articles in 1953. The first one everybody knows about, double helix structure, accompanied by articles by Franklin and Wilkins. Then six weeks later, they published this second article, which I'm obsessed about, but which an awful lot of people haven't read, but which they talk about genetic information. And they then assumed that would be that. They were both going to America to carry on doing postdocs. Crick had finally got his PhD at the age of uh, whatever he was, 37? or something and he was now going to go to uh, America to do a postdoc and just before they leave they get this very weird letter from uh, an American cosmologist called George Gamow written in huge block letters green ink the kind of thing that normally you chuck in the bin and even more bizarre saying oh really interesting article about the genetic code I've cracked it here's the answer and they've Well, they knew what he suggested was completely wrong because he was suggesting that uh, proteins were synthesized because that's basically what genes do is they synthesize proteins. Proteins were synthesized on the DNA molecule. And although how it worked was still very unclear, everybody knew that, who was a biologist, knew that, in fact, DNA in some way went into RNA, this other molecule, this simpler molecule, and then led to the production of proteins. So, what this Gamoff uh, letter did, I mean, Crick ignored it for a while, but eventually Gamoff tracked him down in New York when he was on his postdoc, and they had a, a big kind of conversation and argument. And Crick really changed his mind, not so much in thinking that Gamoff was right, because he wasn't, but in thinking, well, maybe we can crack this. Maybe this is a problem which we can resolve. And they ended up creating this thing called uh, the RNA Tie Club which was composed of uh, 20 men who wore ties. Each tie had the RNA molecule on it, and each of them had their own little tie pin to hold their tie onto their nice little shirt, because there are 20 naturally occurring amino acids. And the basic problem of what the genetic code was doing was how you got from a genetic information in the DNA molecule into a protein molecule which is basically composed of strings of amino acids so there are 20 naturally occurring amino acids and in some way there must be some bit of the bases this sequence of bases in each sequence must correspond in some way to each of the 20 naturally occurring amino acids so one of the things this RNA Thai club did was to send round informal documents a bit like you'd have in an email list today but this, this involved letters you know, they actually had to type this stuff up onto uh, that very thin uh, airmail paper that we used to use and then send it round the world. This stuff went to South Africa. It went to Caltech in, on the on the West Coast. It went to Cambridge and so on. And they exchanged these documents. And one of the things that Crick worked on Uh, He eventually called the central dogma, unfortunately, um, and gave it. I'll explain why it was unfortunate in a minute, and gave it uh, as a lecture in 1957. Then it was finally published in 1958. And this assertion or hypothesis, really, is that what he said is once information has got out of the DNA molecule into a protein, it can't get back in. Now, Crick was arguing this on the basis of what little we knew of the biochemistry at the time that when a protein is created that protein can't affect the dna sequence and that argument which he called it a dogma and it's not a dogma because a dogma is something that you know to be true and cannot be changed this is a hypothesis in fact and remarkably despite um, a lot of very excited crowing which happens about every 10 years it remains completely intact there is no known way by which a protein Can affect the DNA sequence of your genes. It can affect the way your genes are expressed, but it can't actually affect the sequence.
2: I wanted to talk for a moment about one of the, I think he's one of the heroes of your book, he's someone else who's working on the outside of the establishment, really, and and is working on the the sort of race to crack the genetic code, and that's Marshall Nuremberg.
3: Yeah, Nuremberg. Nuremberg was quite an amazing man because he was a complete outsider. He'd applied to, he did a, an MSc in Cadiz fly biology, so he's a naturalist at, uh, at heart, and then started doing biochemistry PhD. It wasn't particularly brilliant. Tried to go and do a postdoc with Crick and also in Paris with Jacob and Monod, who are the great powerhouses of uh, molecular biology in the late 1950s. And he was ignored. They didn't want him. And he managed to get a job working in the National Institutes of Arthritis and Metabolic Diseases, I think it was called, which was in Bethesda, outside uh, Washington. This was a bit of a backwater in one respect, in that, you know, he wasn't in one of these great powerhouses. But he became increasingly obsessed with the idea of using the recently developed techniques for getting protein synthesis to take place in a test tube so basically you got all the bits from a bacterium chuck them into a test tube and you could get the cell if you were, get the test tube if you were clever enough to actually start producing proteins he decided that if he could get some artificial rna which was increasingly thought to be the kind of some way connected with DNA. It was still very unclear, but as I said, DNA had in some way transmitted its information to RNA, which in some way then created, helped create the protein. If he could use an artificial RNA, he could actually persuade this test tube mixture of gubbins to produce a protein. And if he knew what the sequence of the RNA molecule was, then he could find out what the amino acid that that RNA sequence produced. Now he was, as said, in a bit of a backwater in one respect, but in another he wasn't because although his lab wasn't at the cutting edge, people literally down the corridor were. He happened to be in one of the two places in the world that were making these strings of artificial RNA. And his second bit of luck, apart from his straightforward obsession with this problem, was that he wasn't part of the RNA tie Club. Because the RNA tie Club had spent a lot of time in the 1950s thinking about potential codes. And a lot of the mathematicians and physicists who were involved came up with these theoretical codes, every one of which turned out to be wrong. All of their suggestions were completely erroneous. But they changed these codes, these ideas they had, changed the way they thought. One of the things they all agreed on was that a sequence that was repetitive, that was composed of the same base over and over again, couldn't have any function. The cell wouldn't know what to do with it. And they explained this on theoretical grounds. And so what Nirenberg did when he got one of these artificial bits of RNA and stuck it in his test tube, he was doing a stupid experiment that was utterly pointless And yet it turned out to be utterly brilliant and to have worked. Interestingly enough, this experiment, which he did in uh, with his uh, colleague um, Heinrich Matty uh, the, in the spring of 1961, this experiment was subsequently explained away by many of the great figures of uh, molecular biology as either being a mistake, oh, he didn't know what he was doing, or some kind of control experiment that went wrong. Neither of these things are true. It's absolute travesty. It's got written into textbooks. Oh, and then one day, Nirenberg happened to discover that. No, he didn't. He planned the experiment. This was a kind of two-year project. And we know this because he kept very detailed lab diaries in which he explains his thinking. So this was really a a piece of thinking from outside of this closed community, this you know, this hot house of brilliant physicists who knew nothing about biology and were barking up completely the wrong tree.
2: We're pretty much out of time. I mean, there's, there's loads more in this book. You you sort of bring us right up to date with some modern developments like gene editing. There's talk about epigenetics and stuff. But I, I just want to finish off just talking about the shortlisting, really. What does it mean to you that the book's been shortlisted for the Winter Prize?
3: Well, it's absolutely fantastic. I'm absolutely over the moon. Yeah, what an honour. There are five other brilliant books on the shortlist. I've been shortlisted to be put amongst them. It is absolutely fantastic. I was uh, really quite amazed. I was stuck in a traffic jam uh, on the way to my niece's wedding when I got the, the text from my publisher, and it was brilliant news. It made the traffic jam quite acceptable. Uh, yeah, what a great privilege, and I hope we're all going to have a good time on the evening of the 24th of September, which is when they announced the final result and who knows
2: so i've been talking to matthew cobb we've been talking about his book life's greatest secret the race to crack the genetic code which is out now from profile books matthew thank you so much for telling me about it
3: you're very welcome neil
4: I'm and Andrew Muller. Check out the growing Little Atoms media empire at littleatoms.com.
2: Alex Bellos is a best-selling author of Alex's Adventures in Numberland, which was shortlisted for the BBC Samuel Johnson Prize. He blogs about maths for The Guardian, and he has worked for the paper in London and Rio de Janeiro as its unusually numerate foreign correspondent. He is a curator-in-residence at the Science Museum and has a degree in mathematics and philosophy from the University of Oxford. And his latest book is Alex Through the Looking Glass, How Life Reflects Numbers and Numbers Reflect Life. So, Alex, welcome back to Little Atoms, first of all. Great to be back. So the last time you were on the show, we talked about Alex's adventures in Numberland. So this book, what's this book about and how does it relate to that first book?
0: Well, it's the difficult second album in lots of ways. What I managed to do, I think, with Numberland was introduce kind of reportage and journalism and storytelling into writing about maths. And Numberland was 12 independent chapters. And in each one... I would kind of tell a story about a mathematical concept that used journalism and, you know, I would actually go on travels around the world and also to the library and, you know, kind of academic research and do lots of reading and interview people. And I've carried on with that formula because it was a formula that I think, but well, obviously worked, people liked it. But it's also, it's what I do, you know, I'm mm-hmm. a kind of journalist, a scientifically or mathematically numerate, literate journalist, and that's what I wanted to carry on doing. So I needed to find new topics and topics that kind of fitted together well and what I realized actually doing the first one is that I'd tended to concentrate on pure maths Mm -hmm. and that was I guess because you know I studied maths and philosophy I was much more interested in pure maths so this was a bit of a journey into applied maths which is maths with applications maths basically as something to describe the real world and I also thought well Originally, it had come up in a kind of different context, which was this idea of kind of favourite numbers. And mm-hmm. then I realized that favourite numbers are actually, it's not an application of the world, but it's a kind of consequence on us of mathematics. And so I got this kind of bivalence thing going on. It's how we affect the world using maths, but how the kind of world affects us, how mm-hmm. numbers affect us. So even though it's really just the first chapter about the whole psychological responses, yeah. it feels that there are, there are kind of two sides. And hopefully the book hangs together as a book and definitely it sounds like it's the sequel Alex Through the Looking Glass to Alex's Adventure in the Numberland but it's it's more of a companion volume it's something that I think you can definitely read first it sits alone and if anything it's book one is pure maths done through reportage book Mm -hmm. two is applied maths done through
2: reportage so as you've already mentioned it starts with this Projects where you you set out to well I guess let's talk about the concept of, of favourite numbers or yeah. lucky numbers first because I don't have one I never really have had one I guess when I was a kid perhaps I would say two because that's the day that my birthday is and perhaps I'd choose that number. Not that I would, but if I was picking lottery numbers, I might stick a two in there or something. But, you know, I don't have a particularly favourite number, and you mentioned yourself, you didn't either. And so it is quite surprising to discover that a lot of people do.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that was my way in. Giving talks after Numblern came out, I would always, you know, any questions at the end of a talk, and someone would always be sitting there, you know, on the front row with their hands straight up. So what's your favourite number? And as I said, I don't have a favourite number. I just thought this was idiotic. And it was just a way of kind of trivialising the issue. Until I started to think, well, so many people are asking me this. Do they have favourite numbers? And so when I would ask back... And people gave considered responses. This is grown-up people. You know, I would ask the entire audience, well, who has a favourite number? And usually between about a third to two-thirds of an audience would put up their hands. And actually, irrespective of whether I was talking to, you know, PhDs or children, on average, one in two, 50% of people, I think, will have a favourite number. And this, I thought, was fascinating because surely you grow out of favourite things. And also, how can any number be favourite over any other it's kind of less about the numbers but it's more about us as humans as i looked into it i realized that it is actually quite a lot to do with the numbers you know you Mm -hmm. said that you thought two because you're born on the second well it's true the most common reason for having a favorite number that's the day you were born on but given that that's the case there are certain days that you can be born on that are just not popular as favourite numbers. Mm -hmm. So if you're born on the 25th or the 30th of a month, no way you're going to choose 25 or 30 as a favourite number. Yet, if you're born on the 7th or the 13th, definitely the 13th you will choose that As your favourite number I should explain now Where I got this data from So once I got interested By this idea That you know Whenever I would ask people Do you have a favourite number And you know One and two Would give a serious Considered response I thought well Why don't I have Try and do a sort of Global survey So I set up An online survey On the site Favouritenumber.net Now that's got All the results on it And all I was asking Was just Do you have a favourite number And then why So I got In the end Over 40,000 responses From around the world I've got quantitative results which is you know seven is the most popular number and then three next then eight next and also have qualitative stuff which is the descriptions Mm -hmm. and actually to me the qualitative stuff is a bit more interesting because with the quantitative stuff you can't really take it Overly seriously. It's a bit of fun that leads us to some interesting discoveries. But i interested
2: you, know, you you I mean you said that this <laughs> it is about the, the, the psychology of the numbers really, but, but you can see patterns. There is some maps there when you look at those responses because Definitely, really, definitely uh, there are certain numbers as you mentioned that occur again and again and again and then there's a pattern.
0: Yeah, yeah. The responses taken as a whole are remarkably coherent. Mm-hmm. And I think when I said not to trust it so much is that the actual percentages maybe can't be totally trusted because who entered my survey, it wasn't, you know, there was no control group, yeah. it wasn't, uh, you know, randomly sampled. It was basically people who found out about it and who yeah. felt passionate about it. So amongst people who feel passionately about favourite numbers, you can definitely say that about 10% like seven, mm-hmm. which is the most popular one. And seven, you know, it then got me thinking why is seven interesting? Why historically? Are there more sevens around in, you know, old ancient stories and myths? And I thought, well, what's what's the most ancient writing that we have? And it's um, cuneiform on Babylonian clay tablets. So I called up Princeton University and spoke to, you know, the world expert who'd read more cuneiform clay tablets than anyone else. And I just said, you know... Talking about numbers, what numbers come up? And she said, yeah, absolutely. The seven comes up more than anything else. So that is interesting to me because culture doesn't happen, to mix my metaphors, doesn't happen in a a vacuum. Mm. Actually, we're responding to certain things. And definitely seven is interesting because it's the only number of the first 10 numbers that you can't multiply or divide and stay in the group, if that makes sense. Explain it. So one, two, three, four and five, you can double that and it's 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10. 6, we've counted that, you can half that. 8, you can half that. 9, you can divide it by 3. 10, you can half it. But 7, you can't divide it by anything, and you can't multiply it by anything, and stay within the group. So it is, it kind of feels unique. And I think that, I say I have no favourite number, and it's totally true. But once I started to think about this, I thought, do you know what? I actually have... Emotional responses to numbers, I kind of feel that numbers have personalities. I couldn't really put my finger on it, but odd numbers do feel a bit different to even numbers. Round numbers, one is responding in a human way, in a non-strict, dispassionate, objective way. There is something subjective there, and this is something that people don't really talk about. I found virtually no academic research into it, but it's really interesting.
2: We'll move on in a minute to talk about this... There's a great bit in the book where you talk about people giving numbers quality. It's almost sort of anthropomorphising number. And we'll talk about the difference between odd and even numbers as well. But let's perhaps tell me some more favourite numbers. What are the common numbers, are people's favourite numbers and why?
0: Essentially, if we start from a blank slate, we like smaller numbers better. And then bigger the numbers get, we like them least. So if you say on a complete blank slate, we should like... Number one best, number two second best, number three third best, etc. So that's the kind of black slate. But certain numbers punch above their weight. So prime numbers... odd numbers to a certain extent but essentially prime numbers really that pushes you up the ranking being a round number and i include one in that one is seen as quite boring pushes you really down the rankings so what you have is this backbone that it's pretty much tied to the quantity the ranking Mm -hmm. is is tied to the value with certain aspects of numbers that either improve raise or lessen you know your performance with a few other kind of randoms in there so 42 does quite well (laughs) pi does quite well 69 does quite well you know things that have other cultural connotations Mm -hmm. but this is you know it really is quite coherent and I myself have reasons for why this might be you know I think that we like prime numbers we like odd numbers because they're harder for the brain they're harder to process, so they stay in our brains a bit longer, and we there's more space and more time to invest them with stories. And if you have a number like say four, six, or eight, or ten, you can divide them. You can sort of play around with them. Whereas if you've got a number like seven or eleven, there's nothing you can do with it. It just stays there. It's kind of more deeply rooted, mm-hmm. and so it feels more like I guess I guess it was embarrassed saying these things because you know I like the objective, but like, like you could trust it better but mm-hmm. it's more loyal. And people, once you start to think about it, you do actually find yourself using adjectives that you would normally use for a human being, you <laughs> No rather than a number. But actually, they make sense. And I think that you understand what I say when I say that 7-11 and 11 is stronger and it's more loyal.
2: You know, that is weird, because I had never thought that of numbers before, really. And then when I read down the list that you provided a number of responses to numbers, of, and often wildly contradictory descriptions of, of what people yeah. thought of numbers, they all did. You go, yeah, that sort of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I sort of agree with that. Yeah, I can see why people would
4: think those things. definitely yeah
0: yeah and I think that I mean that comes with the whole idea of gender Mm -hmm. also which is that the last thing I would have thought and I would have never taken anyone seriously had they said yes numbers have gender but actually once you look at it you notice that people do respond and give numbers a gender and once you have looked at all the arguments read the history and seen the data you start to think it kind of makes sense (laughs) (laughs) It does kind of make sense. So the way that I got interested is that in the qualitative data of the Favourite Numbers Survey, I noticed that people that chose different numbers use different adjectives to describe the way they like them. So the number one, for example, was always strong and independent and unique, quite male characteristics. And two was fragile, pretty, flexible, quite feminine characteristics. And I thought... Maybe in our kind of collective ideas of what numbers are, there is a bit of gender. And then when I started reading of kind of the history of math, you know, you find out that the very first words in Babylonian times that were used for numbers, one, phallus. That's the word. It's the same word, two, woman. And then, you know, you talk about the Pythagoreans, so the kind of the Pythagoras and his kind of math cult of about 800 BC. They had this view that odd numbers were male and even numbers were were female and this uncontroversial for pretty much all of antiquity and actually kind of embraced in the great monotheistic religions that you know one is Adam, two is Eve. Mm-hmm. And this then gets interpreted in various sort of mystical ways. And so one also in the odd numbers become lucky, fortunate, a bit more mystical. Two, a bit blander, a bit secondary.
2: And different cultures around the world have different takes on numbers. So, so you know, particularly Eastern cultures have a lot of lucky numbers, threes and sevens. And also, but I mean, 7 you've already mentioned seven being the most popular favourite number yeah. and, and lucky number. It also resonates with culture as well. You know, the Seven Seas and the Seven Deadly Sins and... Seven, seven Dwarves. Days seven Dwarves. Yeah. yeah, it does all of those... It's a number se- that se- seems right in it that It seems place. right. Well,
0: if you have, say, five dwarves... I mean, maybe you could have five dwarves, but it it, it doesn't feel like a proliferation of dwarves. But if you had an even number of dwarves, it would just be a bit weird because if you had eight dwarves, then there might be like four and four. You could sort of split it, but it doesn't feel you want them all to be individual or all together. And you kind of only get that with an odd number.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: In fact, I hadn't thought about it before. I wonder if that's why lots of um, team sports have odd numbers, you know, 11 Mm. in football, 15 in rugby maybe the, there's there's something in that five and five aside you yeah. yes. <laughs> Every number tells a story. That's the that's the moral for this. <laughs> I
2: wonder how much of this stuff... And again, I did think this after. I've just said earlier that, you know, I saw that list where you list a load of adjectives that people put against certain numbers. And while I did think, oh, yeah, you know, I can see why people put those, because often they were contradictory, it did remind me of, you know, horoscopes, where actually you can switch <laughs> them all around and, and you'd still read it and go, yeah, yeah, that's definitely me. There's a great bit in the book where you, you talk to a guy, Greg Rowland. Greg Rowland, yes. This, amazing gig that he somehow amazing. managed to get. Yeah. <laughs> he basically advises companies on, on the symbolism of numbers.
0: In fact, I know Greg from university. I didn't know him particularly well, but he was kind of, I knew of him. And he was always the kind of guy who loved sort of semiotics, mm-hmm. semiotics of everything, which is the, the, the cultural symbols that you have. And then he went on to form his own company. And now. The job of semiotician is not so controversial. It's kind of a branding. Essentially what it is, it's branding without focus groups. Yeah. Okay, so usually advertising, it wants to know what people think, so it goes and asks people. When you go to ask people like Greg, he tells you what people think based on cultural symbols, so on, what movies might say. So it's cultural analysis, um, what books might say, what art has said. And he works for many like of the world's top companies and has advise them on their like ad campaigns and so I went to see him and I said have you also done numbers and he said he doesn't do numbers like just numbers that doesn't exist but numbers have their own symbols and they do have their own semiotics and he has worked for companies that have numbers and that he would tell me exactly how that number works and what it kind of says within a culture so on the one hand it sounds like totally bogus. He's just sort of making it up. But weirdly, the science kind of backs it up. And I think what that shows is that culture is kind of in tune with psychology. You know, culture, certain things work as brands, because we as humans, we like it. And then you realise that it's work, because there are some psychological reasons to it. And the ones which I think were kind of most obvious is that he says that when you have a round number, and you add one, so 11... 51, 101, 1001. It gives this idea of a step to the infinite, just a little bit beyond. And it's kind of true. So what, 2001, Space Oddity. It's like, it's not, it's not 2000, it's a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, 1001, what's a 1001 nights, you know, Arabian nights. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you've got 101 Dalmatians. You know, you've got so many things in culture where, you know, and George Orwell, Room 101, that's the torture room. Subconsciously you think, I want the number to express something. And numbers do express stories. And I think he really hits the nail on the head. And, you know, he's saying that he did work for KFC. And KFC classically have, you know, Colonel Sanders' original recipe of 11 herbs and spices. And he says that that whether or not he really did have 11 herbs and spices or the branding person who decided that, it works brilliantly well, because 11 gives the idea of just one more than the round number. It's a bit more edgy, it's a bit more exciting, but it really is. You know, the gag, it's the Spinal Tap gag, you let's turn the amps up to 11. You know, that's funny, but it's funny because it's sort of true. <laughs>
4: I'm Irving Finkel, and you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
1: uh <laughs>
2: You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and this week I'm talking to Alex Bellos. We're talking about his book, Alex Through the Looking Glass, How Life Reflects Numbers and Numbers Reflect Life. And Alex, in this second part, I want to introduce a man called Frank Benford.
0: So Frank Benford wasn't even a mathematician. He was a physicist at the General Electric Company in New York who discovered, well, he really rediscovered in 1938 a phenomenon that Simon Newcomb, the Canadian-American astronomer, had discovered about 50 years previously, which is that you didn't have calculators then, you used log tables. And they noticed that in log tables, pages that were the logs of one was really, you know, it was really used, it was smudgy, there were rips in it. The page that was the logs of nine was virtually untouched. And at first you could think, well, that's because maybe one's at the beginning of the book um, as you go through. But obviously you don't read log tables like a book. Newcombe and then Benford realised, you know what? This is because we're dealing with numbers that begin with a one more than we're dealing with numbers that begin with a two, more than that we're dealing with numbers that begin with a three, all the way down to nine. And they conjectured that actually numbers that rise naturally in the world have this distribution which is called Benford's Law after Benford because he became really obsessed with it because he then started to look at data sets and see if it was true. And he looked at sports scores, he looked at data about rivers, he looked at physical constants, he looked at financial data and he found out that it pretty much was numbers beginning with a one, about 30%. Numbers beginning with a two, about 17.5%. All the way down and numbers beginning with a nine, 4.5%. 4.5%. So when you say numbers beginning with, that is the leftmost digit when written as in decibel. Mm-hmm. So if you have 5321.064, 0, 0, that's five because it starts 5321. When you have 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0.000032, that's a three. Mm-hmm. So you eliminate the zero and it's basically the first one. And this works, kind of only works when you use lots of powers of tens. So you've got to have a big spread. If it's just looking at a data set which is say ages of humans mm-hmm. ages of adults is going to be between 18 and 100 mm-hmm. you're not going to find Benford's law applying but if you do it on you know classic one is yes. the sizes of towns and cities you go from the smallest hamlet which has like five people up to cities of 20 million you've got the huge span mm-hmm. and Benford's law I mean it's scary how accurate it is you know you do the graphs and you superimpose what the Benford's Law the perfect one is and we get the actual figures it's through using logarithms and it's, it's almost like exact so it's remarkable
2: and although it's, this is, when you first see this thing, it seems unbelievable and sort of counterintuitive, but once you've read a bit about it, it seems perhaps explicable when we're talking about, you know, human-generated numbers, like financial systems and, and things like that, and perhaps even, like, things like like cities. But as you just mentioned, this works for, like, natural phenomena and physical laws as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there are certain things that, when you, you say, when you first discover it, you think, well, that's amazing. And you think, oh, my God, it kind of... It has to kind of be like that. So just say I look at my bank account and I've got, you know, things in there like little interest, which is 0.00. 00. <laughs> and then I've got, you know, maybe payments of a £3,000. So I've got quite a lot of spread of digits. It will be the case that Benford's law applies. So about 30% of the entries begin with a 1 down to 4.5% they the entries begin with a 9. That's all in pounds. If I was to transfer this to any currency in the world you know, euros or dollars or yens, every single individual digit would be different. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, there would always be, about 30% would begin with a one, all the way down to four and a half with a nine. And at first you think, well, that's kind of amazing. How, that's amazing. How does that work? And you think, well, that has to be the case, because if there is a distribution, well, it has to work, you know, and it has to also work with, if you're uh, measuring certain, you know, the lengths of rivers in kilometres, it then also has to work in miles. Mm-hmm. So it's called what sort of scale, the scale and variance is something that it has to happen and it's the only possible distribution that this is the case that is scale invariant that whatever set you have that conforms to it if you multiply it by any factor it maintains it
2: so a simple question but it's probably <laughs> an incredibly complicated answer why why does it work i mean again in really ridiculously simple terms is there just are there more numbers that begin with the one
0: well is it, there are many levels of intuition so the most obvious one is Let's say we're counting numbers from 1 upwards. And let's say we count from 1 to, say, 20. By the time we get to 20, half of the numbers begin with a 1 because, mm-hmm. you know, you've got 10, 11, 12, etc. And the numbers from 1 to 20 are always going to get more numbers that begin with a 1 than mm-hmm. begin with a 2, and etc. And so that the higher that you get up, if you keep on counting... You know, you're never going to get more nines than eights, more eights than you're only ever going to get more ones and twos, more twos than threes, etc. And so you think, all oh, right, I kind of get it, but then why is it the case that numbers only appear analogous to this idea of counting upwards? Because numbers don't necessarily happen like that. And when I went and asked Ted Hill, who was like the world expert on Benford's law, he just said, "There is no intuitive explanation. That's like saying why does Pythagoras' theorem work? It just does." <laughs> you know, there are ways of proving why it is the case mm-hmm. and his theorem says that if you select if you have random data sets and they can be of any distribution you like random data sets and you select samples from them randomly then the more samples you select from more data sets you will get Benford's law mm-hmm. and I don't understand the proofs. it uses ergodic theory which is a bit of kind of statistical physics that I don't understand because it's you know, you'd only several years into a university degree would you ever you would ever get it. So we can get a proof, and it's very complicated, but there isn't really an intuitive description of why. Mm-hmm.
2: You actually in the book you test it yourself yeah. using the Doomsday Book.
0: Yeah, I thought that would be fun because the Doomsday Book is essentially the first book of stats that mm-hmm. there is. And yeah, I went and I got out of the library and it's kind of funny in what it is, it says in this town in Kent, I think it starts with, you know, this book has this amount of servants, this amount of ploughs, this amount of herring. And I was looking just at the numbers, just wanting and taking the first digits. And it's true that a lot more ones appear that's often because they're really concerned with ploughs and if you're going to have one you're only going to need one plough mm. per homestead but then it's interesting you know when does the first nine appear in the doomsday book it's pages and pages in and by then you've already got a two and a three and a four and you do see that yes the numbers are appearing but one is more popular than two two is more popular than three etc etc etc
2: so this is it's an interesting trick it's probably one of those things that you know People studying maths erroneously think will oh, make them look good in the uh, in the student union bar or whatever. But um, what use is it?
0: It Has several uses. I mean, when you say it's mathematicians showing off the student union bar, actually, before it had any scientific use, it was used by magicians because it's so amazing that magicians would say. Because the classic case is in this newspaper that you're reading, I will tell you that there are exactly thirty point one or percentage of numbers. I will say a third of numbers will begin with a one and a twentieth of the numbers will begin with a nine and it will be the case in all newspapers in all over the world. And actually serious mathematicians used to think that it was a bit of a, it was a gimmick. It was something that magicians did. And it was only in the last, say, 10, 20 years that people have realised that the fact that you have this amazing pattern that is pretty much there wherever you look. If you look somewhere where you would expect to find that pattern and it's not there... Well, that tells you something really interesting, mm-hmm. that either the data are not randomly generated, possibly because it's not been reported well, or maybe because there's been fraud. And so Benford's law is now used in uh, forensic financial um, investigations. You go into someone's account, or you go into the sort of profit loss ledger, and if it is not the case that 30% of numbers begin with the one, then something is up. It could be that the company is in toothpicks and it bought a million toothpicks for 4p each and then obviously you'd get a spike on 4 but it's also the case that maybe the data wasn't randomly generated yeah because so it'd if i
2: made up my you know my figures and did a, a random list of numbers out of my head that would show up
0: yeah it would it definitely would you know it's very difficult to randomly generate numbers mm-hmm. actually linking something before And I didn't realize this when I was writing the book, but someone came to tell me that because they're an accountant, that when people do just come up with invented numbers, there are a lot more sevens in it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because when you're trying to invent something that sounds random, well, seven that sounds really random. (laughs) So yeah, so look for (laughs) high incidences of seven. But also, you want to see if there's some kind of divergence from Benford's law.
2: And you, you went and met with some people who are you know, investigators. Yeah, know. I mean, I
0: went and met this guy and he had such a fantastic name, which is a good enough reason to see him. Daryl D. Doral. I just think it's brilliant. Daryl D. It's, it's It's got such music to it. And he was fantastic. He was a lovely, lovely guy. I went to see him in Portland. And he was like saying, I'm the only Republican in Portland because you know, it's a very kind of liberal city. And that's cool because he's very American, you know, he's there, he wants to get the bad guys. He was a kind of all American hero. He you know, got a licence to carry a gun and his the, you know, well, he doesn't use a gun, he uses mathematical techniques and the one he liked the best is the benford's law.
2: it's a great point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Alex Bellos. And we've been talking about his book, Alex Through the Looking Glass, How Life Reflects Numbers and Numbers Reflect Life, which is out now from Bloomsbury Books. So, Alex, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me again.
0: Thank you very much. It's been great fun. I'm Greg Jenner, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
2: Ian Stewart's recent books include 17 Equations That Changed the World, The Great Mathematical Problems, Professor Stewart's Casebook of Mathematical Mysteries, and Calculating the Cosmos. And he's also the co-author with Terry Pratchett and Jack Cohen of the Science of Discworld series. And I'm talking to Ian today in his capacity as the Chair of Judges for this year's Royal Society Winter Prize for Science books. So, Ian, welcome to Little Atoms again.
4: Oh, it's nice to be back.
2: So yeah, you're the Chair of Judges this year. So who else is on that panel with you?
4: Okay, there's... Sarah Waters, an award winning author, um, Krishnan Guru-Murthy, Adam Rutherford, Joe Sheen N G and Claire Armitstead.
2: And so what does the what, what do you do as the chair of the judges? What's your role?
4: My role is mainly to coordinate the process of choosing the winner, which comes in a series of stages and the judging panel meets and the first step is to go through we started with over 250 entries which was cut down to about 50 by some books really didn't fit the conditions of the prize and so forth this always happens so we ended up with 50 which were then sent to all the judging panel to go over and then we met and selected a short list of six so my job was really to keep that process under control and try and structure it so that we did actually arrive at a decision it turned out to be easier than i was expecting we found that although it was a, quite a wide variety of people with different backgrounds some scientists some not scientists when it came to working the sort of top dozen or so our choices overlapped a lot so it looked like there were a dozen or so books that really did stand out as particularly well-written, on-topic, suitable for, for this particular prize.
2: But there's not there's not a long list published for this prize, is there? So you, you had to get it down to those six on the short list. So what was that discussion like? Was there much disagreement then?
1: Okay,
4: what happened there was we had an unofficial long list of about 50, and then each of us individually had our own unofficial long list of about 20. In other words, the top 20 that we would, you know, according to our views and preferences. So essentially, anything that wasn't on anybody's top 20 was immediately eliminated. And then we essentially tried to see whether there were people who were only on one person's long list and what the others thought about that particular book. And so slowly going up, we kind of eliminated them one by one until we got down to about 20 or so. (laughs) And then it started to get a lot more difficult. You know, some of us particularly like one particular book. Some were not so keen on that book for whatever reason, but had another one they liked. So we went through all of that, sort of surviving twenty, one by one, discussing the book, uh, seeing how enthusiastic anybody was about it, getting one of the judges to make the case for that book, if you like. And out of that emerged a consensus of about ten, which we felt between us were where we were going to get our sixth shortlist from. And then we had a much more extensive discussion of those ten books and comparing them with each other. If there were several books on the same topic, the question really was which book on that topic is going to make it into the shortlist, because we wouldn't have two books on quantum mechanics, let's say, or two books on astronomy. We wanted a a variety of different areas of science and different kinds of writing. So eventually it came down to actually everybody voting, and then the top six were the ones that we chose for our shortlist.
2: So those six then, so I, want, I was going to ask why those six? You've sort of explained that already, but you mentioned there that you wanted to choose not just a range of subjects, but a range of different writing as well. So in, in sort of reference to those six books, how, is, how does that come across, different types of writing?
4: Well, what happened, for example, John Butterworth's Smashing Physics Inside the World's Biggest Experiment is one of the technically most difficult books. He's talking about particle physics, he's talking about the Large Hadron Collider and the... Higgs boson and things like that. And this is a very difficult topic. So what he did was tell a kind of almost journalistic story of what was going on as viewed by one of the scientists involved with frequent technical pages saying let me tell you in a bit more detail what the physics is here whereas the man who couldn't stop by david adam which is about obsessive compulsive disorder is largely a series of anecdotes and stories about people with ocd uh, and the author himself has ocd and it's telling you what it's like to suffer from this condition while remaining remarkably upbeat about the whole thing and feeding in the science of that disorder, the psychology, the psychiatry, the neurophysiology that is known about such things. Life's Greatest Secret by Matthew Cobb is essentially a fairly detailed history of how the genetic code was cracked. So it goes more into the science in a lot more detail but he's telling it from a historical point of view. Who did what and who argued with whom about what and who discovered the important things and so on. So each book had its own distinctive style. Um, Alex's Looking Glass, the mathematical one, is a series of mathematical topics, but related to everyday life. On the other hand, Life on the Edge by Jim Al-Khalili and John Joe McFadden is about a science that hardly exists yet, which is quantum biology. So this was not just frontier stuff. This was ideas that are very, very new and still fairly speculative. And then Adventures in the Anthropocene is essentially by a journalist, a science journalist, Guy Vince, who went around the world trying to find out not just about global warming and ecological changes, but about what people are doing to deal with them, the positive side of the whole thing. So each of the six books was on a a separate area of science, and each was written in its own sort of style. So this just, we didn't really choose them for that. That's how it worked out. But when we looked at the lists, we thought, OK, we have actually succeeded in getting the kind of variety of topics and variety of written styles that we were hoping to.
2: So just one final question then. So the the ceremony is on the 24th of September when the winner will be revealed. Apart from a a nice big cheque for £25,000, what will it mean for the winning author to win this prize?
4: Well, it's a very big public... Pat on the back saying, this is a really, really good book. It should increase the sales of the book. In the past, this is generally what seems to happen. And it's not not surprising. It will get quite a lot of publicity. And here is a book that a panel of people who presumably know what they're talking about have said, you know, this one is really well worth reading. And most importantly of all, I think it's an encouragement from the scientific and science writing communities validated by the Royal Society to the author, or possibly authors, saying, that was really, really good. Please keep going. Please keep doing more like that.
2: Ian Stewart, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it.
4: My pleasure.
1: You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms.
4: You can find old interviews, new journalism and
0: more on our relaunched website, LittleAdams.com. Thanks for listening.